Wow. I don't know about those of you in the Renew service, but that song, Death Was Arrested, I know you sang it in there this morning as well. That's going to be my Easter song this year. I sing it every day. Awesome song. Thanks, Colton, for introducing it to us. Begin with a bit of a history reminder. For those of us in here, it's, it is a reminder. For those in the Renew service, it might be a little bit new, not new, but uh, certainly not familiar. At the end of World War I and World War II, when American soldiers returned home, they were welcomed as heroes. Most of them were ordinary, hardworking, everyday people. But when they came home, they were adored. And for some of us, that was our fathers, grandfathers. For generations, children were taught how their uncles, grandfathers, sometimes grandmothers and aunts, had given up for them. When soldiers returned from Vietnam, at that time the longest war in American history, well, listen to the experience of one 21-year-old infantryman. His name was Stephen Wauk. He was wounded two times in the course of battle and was sent home for treatment and a long recovery. He landed in Boston and um, was bussed to the Naval Hospital along with other vets. Here's how History.com puts it. Strapped to a gurney in a retrofitted bus, Woke and other wounded servicemen felt excitement at being back on American soil, but looking out the window and seeing civilians stop to watch the small convoy of hospital-bound vehicles, his excitement turned to confusion. A hero's welcome, it was not. I remember feeling like, what could I do to acknowledge them, he said, and, and I just gave them the peace sign. But instead of getting peace fingers in return, I got the middle finger. Now, as we know, at least two things had changed. This was the first war in American history, which they lost. They came home losers, not winners. Second, there was increasing doubt about America's leadership role in the world and how it was exercising that role. And actually, there was increasing cynicism in the world as to whether the world needed a moral policeman. Can't we just all get along? Imagine, said John Lennon, and the confusion about how they were welcomed home was at least partly why many of those vets became disillusioned and, well, I don't need to rehearse all that happened. As we come to Mark chapter 6 in our journey through this gospel, Take your Bible or Bible app and turn to Mark 6. Jesus came home. Jesus is coming home from an amazing tour of duty. Let's just quickly track where he's been. From chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4 of Mark, he's been teaching and healing people around the town of Capernaum, close to the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And beginning at chapter 3, verse 7, it's mostly been by the lake. And from there, Jesus sets out on his mission. And, And a military mission, really, it is. 
We've been wowed. We, we, we've cheered him on in the last couple of Sundays as he, as he does battle with the forces of nature calming a storm on his way across the Sea of Galilee into Gentile territory. We wonder how we'd respond when he asked his disciples, come on you guys, don't you, don't, do you still not trust me? You're in good hands. Chapter 5, he goes straight onto the turf of the evil one. Gentile territory among the tombs and does battle with the forces of death and evil who have captured a poor man and kept him under their control. He casts out demons who call, a a demon who calls himself legion. Legion, we're many. We're so powerful, so many will swarm you. Nothing can conquer us. But Jesus conquers and brings wholeness And we say, go, Jesus. Chapter 5, beginning of verse 21, we're amazed last Sunday at his powerful grace as he comes back across the lake. And instead of just kowtowing to the adulating crowds, Jesus focuses on two individuals, healing a woman who has suffered and been marginalized for 12 years and then raising to life a young girl, both of whom had come to a position of uncleanness that were not allowed to be touched. And Jesus absorbed into himself all of our uncleanness and makes us clean and whole. Yea, Jesus. And now, as we come to chapter 6, Jesus comes back home to Nazareth. The way Mark writes the story, this scene of Jesus coming home is is the wrap-up The end of this season of ministry that began in chapter 3, verse 7. Let's join Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left that place. In other words, the edge of the shore of Galilee where he had performed the miracle of this woman, these women. And he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. He's coming home. What kind of a reception will he get? His tour of duty demonstrated that he is the authority of the universe, the rightful, righteous, all-powerful, and good ruler of all that is, the one who conquers everything against us and brings us into shalom, wholeness, peace, richness, togetherness. Will he get a hero's welcome? Or will it be something less? We're not told, but we know that's the, the question the disciples must be asking because Jesus has been back home once before and it didn't go so well. Mark doesn't record this, but Luke does. Luke chapter 4, if you, if you want to go there, feel free to, to turn to Luke chapter 4. He, Jesus had left home when John the Baptist had been imprisoned. Let things cool down a little bit. Because, as we often read, his time had not yet come. He comes back, goes into the synagogue. Remember that. And in the synagogue, he declares, I'm the one the prophets pointed to. And Jesus gets a prophet's welcome. The same kind of reception that Joseph received by his brothers in Genesis. Jesus says, Be careful, 
This has happened before. Most prophets didn't fare well. Don't make the same mistake. But we read that when they heard this, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, forced him out of town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and he left. It's like, whoa, what just happened here? He leaves upcountry to Capernaum, which is where the Gospel of Mark starts with Jesus' ministry. Chapter 1, verse 21. So everything we've seen in Mark's Gospel comes after that initial hometown encounter with Jesus, and now he's coming back home again. And in the mind of Jesus' disciples, that question is lurking. Will it be different this time? This time, he's coming back a champion. He's proven himself. This time, he'll get a hero's welcome, won't he? As we go through this chapter, we're going to answer three questions. We'll spend the most time on the first one, walking through this. What, what, what does happen when Jesus comes home? The second question, what really happened? What is it that really happens when Jesus came home? And then the third question, and I'd like you to be thinking about this the whole, the whole time we're talking. How might what happened when Jesus came home be happening right now? When Jesus is asking me to make my heart his home. So, number one, what happens when Jesus comes home? Well, Jesus left that place, came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Not, not just the twelve, but that larger group who are starting to follow him sincerely. When Sabbath came... He began to teach in that same synagogue. He's been around town for a few days. It's a small town, probably about 500 people at this point, historians think. So there's not a person in town who hasn't either seen him or heard that he's back. He's probably done one or two miracles already, and now it's Sabbath. Time to gather in the synagogue. And you can bet nobody missed church that day. Everybody knew or everybody sensed that some kind of showdown was coming down in church that morning. This would not be a normal sleep-your-way-through-a-boring-monologue Sabbath. Now, before we look at what happened, we need to understand a bit about synagogue and Sabbath. Synagogue, the the, the word for synagogue, comes from a, a Greek word which means coming together or assembly. Basically, it means meeting place. And there are three primary uses of the synagogue. Number one, on Sabbath, it was used for worship, for gathering together. Number two, during the week, it was used as a schoolhouse. Number three, it was also used as a courtroom to to try minor cases. And their worship on Sabbath uh, basically consisted of three things. Number one, there were prayers. Mostly, probably, recorded prayers from the Psalms, repetitions together. And then number two, they would read a passage, a prescribed passage, from their their Bible, what we call the Older Testament. And they would work through that Older Testament every year. And then number three, there would be teaching about that passage, some commentary. This was not, a synagogue was not the temple. So there were no sacrifices. There were no priests in the synagogue, at least not active duty priests. 
The synagogue was basically a, a lay-led institution. Most synagogues did not have rabbis that were attached to them. But if someone had risen to the point of having a following and had become a known rabbi, it was customary to ask them to speak at the synagogue when they were in town. The ruler of the synagogue, sort of the chair of the board, as we saw last week, he did the inviting and determined who would speak and who wouldn't. Well, by this point, Jesus has definitely become a name. He had a following as a rabbi, and so he's invited to speak. Can you imagine the conversations that those few days before that Sabbath? Hey, you got to get this guy to speak on Sabbath. He's amazing. Next person comes along and says, are you sure you want this guy? He's, he's pretty controversial. Another one says, I know he's a hometown guy, but you know, everyone else is going gaga over him. We, we, we'd look pretty stupid if we didn't get him to speak. I know it didn't go well last time, but, but, but we should give him a second chance. In the end, it was probably, you know, what's the worst that can happen? We don't have to believe him. At least it will spark some discussion, right? And so the synagogue ruler asked him to speak. When Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. You've got to understand what that word astonished really means. That, that's a mild translation. It literally means shocked, struck with a blow. And knocked down, knocked out. The word we would use today is probably shook up, stunned. The word itself doesn't apply whether this is a a blow you away positive kind of astonishment or a take everything you've heard, dismantle it, and leave you with no way to explain it kind of astonishment. So is this a positive shock or a negative shock? Well, it was most likely a bit of both. But whichever it was, when Jesus spoke, you could not just say, ah, whatever. But the next phrase tells us it's the negative shock that ruled the day. Isn't it amazing how how often that's the case? Many who heard him were stunned. And they began to say, huh, where did he get these ideas? And what is this wisdom That has been given to him. So what what kind of question is that? Is this a a shoot the messenger ad hominem? uh, Can't refute the wisdom and so you attack the person question? What does it matter where he got his ideas from? The issue is what is the idea, right? Well actually when you think about it. And you remember Jesus' core message? This is a good question. This is the question. It's just that they're not open to anything but the wrong answer to the question. In their minds, what Jesus said only allowed for two options. Very binary, black or white. Now, it's not that these people don't do gray. Rabbis... Rabbis were masters of gray, of of dialogue. They thrived on gray. On the one hand this, but on the other hand that. 
But what was Jesus' core message? Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 21? I've come with good news. The kingdom of God is near. It's me, I, and the king of the kingdom. I am the good news. Now, that doesn't leave much room for discussion, right? And so the two options are he is or he isn't. He got this idea from God, from God's word, and he was the one they've been waiting for, or he got it from somewhere else. Now, they're not as blunt like some of the teachers of the law back in Capernaum, remember chapter 3, who said that he got it from Beelzebub, the devil. These leaders are actually smarter than that. They don't make an accusation. They just plant a seed of doubt. Hmm. You know, we don't know where this idea comes from, and so we're just going to suspend judgment. But it wasn't just his wisdom. It was his power. What is this wisdom he has been given? What are these miracles that are done through his hands? That, that word miracles, is, it's a valid translation, but literally that word is power. Dunamis, from which we get dynamite. Same word as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, all power will be given to you. And it's a word that is asking, what is the kind of power? What kind of power is this really? Again, good question. But you can ask a question in at least three different kinds of ways, right? You can ask a question in a learner kind of way, like taking it face value and wanting to honestly explore it. You can ask a question in a throw your hands up, it's an unanswerable question kind of way. And you can ask a question cynically, writing off the question as a stupid question, like just asking the question is stupid. The answer is obvious, and it's obviously negative. And it seems that that's how the synagogue leaders are leading the people to think about Jesus. Now, what would have happened if these people had taken this question, these questions at face value? What is this wisdom given to him? And what are these powers that are done through his hands? What would have happened if they would actually run these questions through the grid of, of what they claimed to be their belief system, their authoritative scriptures? Well, number one, their, their scriptures told them that only the creator of the natural world can change the course of nature, can triumph over nature. Check. Their scriptures told them that only God can triumph over, evil, over the evil one. Check. Their scriptures told them that only God can defeat death. Check. And only God can forgive sin. By the way, this is the one that they often camp on because Jesus couldn't prove that the sins were forgiven. 
This is the one that he had not yet proven through his death and resurrection. It's actually the one that got him killed. But not only did their scriptures, which they read every day or every week in that very synagogue on Sabbath, not only did their scriptures tell them that only God could do these things, they told him that one day God would do all of these things. And what has Jesus done? All of these things. This is probably a good place to remind ourselves of, of, of what a miracle is, what Jesus' miracles were. We, we tend to think of a miracle and, and define a miracle as, as an interruption of, of the natural order or, or an inter, a, a suspension of the laws of nature. That's, that's how we understand miracles, isn't it? And depending on how you view that, I mean, there's, there's validity to that. That's not a wrong answer. But if we look at Jesus' miracles in light of Jesus' message, which is what? Good news. The kingdom of God is near, is among you. The kingdom of God, which tells you, which your own scriptures tell you God is going to make, make happen. How else would we define his miracles? They are not just interruptions of a natural order. They are, more significantly, the breakthrough, the restoration of the divine order. The way things were supposed to be and the way things one day will be. That's what they should have seen. And that is what they should have been processing in this time gap between when he came home for the first time and when he came the second time. But their conclusions, and it seems evident that the conclusions they came to were conclusions they've talked about since they've been the last time. Listen to the conclusions. Very interesting. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? The brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simeon, and aren't his sisters here with us? What are they saying? Isn't this the carpenter? That's not a slam. That's not saying he's just a carpenter, as opposed to a rabbi, as opposed to whatever. A carpenter, which is probably a a wood and metal worker, was a valuable member of the community, a significant player in the village economy, like... Like for me, it's like saying, isn't he a mechanic? When we moved to Edmonton, it was, it was two things that we looked for immediately, a doctor and a mechanic. Our vehicle was at a place that we knew that any time it might need more attention than I had the time or even expertise to give it. I put my mechanic at the same level as my doctor. I would never say, he's just a mechanic. This is not a negative statement about Jesus, but it is a, a put-him-in-a-box statement. Son of Mary. Now, that's an interesting choice of words. Nobody called anyone by their mother's name. Shouldn't they not have said son of Joseph? Again, I don't think they're trying to say, oh, he's illegitimate. What they're probably wanting to do is avoid a controversy. Because if somebody said, son of Joseph, somebody else would have said, ah, well, that's an open question, isn't it? Right? By calling him the son of Mary, they're, they're avoiding the real question. 
by looking at just one side of it. We know his family. They're right here. Hmm. Do they think he is what he's claiming to be? Whoa. Can you imagine the awkward place this is putting Jesus' family? Who are they going to side with? His family's already come to him and are trying to rein him in. These religious leaders, if they're authentic, should be helping Jesus' family come to terms with him, not using Jesus' family for their agenda. And surrounding everything they're saying, even in asking the question, where did he suddenly get his wisdom and his power, is this assumption. Here's the assumption. He grew up here. He wasn't like this as a kid, as a teenager, a young adult. He was just a normal guy, a nice guy, a nice normal guy, a good normal guy. But he was just one of us. We know who he is. How does he think he can go and pull the wool over our eyes? That's what they're saying. When our son was four years old, I I woke up one night and and I thought I heard a noise coming from his room right across the hall from our bedroom. And, And I waited a bit and listened and sure enough, it sounded like there was something more than just laying in a bed sleeping going on. And uh, so I, I got out and walked into his room, and sure enough, there he was standing on, on the narrow ledge of the headboard of his Ikea bed with his favorite bedtime cuddly in his hand. Well, cuddly, not. His go-to bedtime cuddly was this big toy Fisher-Price flashlight. He held it, cuddled it all night. And I said something calm and soothing to make sure he didn't totally wake up or fall off the headboard. And, and I was just going to help him lay down and come out of his dream slowly. And, but he didn't lay down. He said, Daddy, I scared away the robbers. I thought, oh my goodness, this guy really is dreaming. I said, I said Michael, you're sleeping. It's okay. He, he looked out the window and he pointed his flashlight out there and he said again, I scared away the robbers. I looked out the window and I saw the car door in the driveway was wide open. And I thought, whoa. So I, in my skivvies, went outside, looked in the car door. The glove box was open. But nothing was stolen. So I shut it, came back. And sure enough, the next day we discovered that there had been cars in the area that were broken into and robbed that night. He had heard a noise, had shone the light out the window and scared them away. You see, what I knew about my son was accurate. It was true. But in that scenario, it was not the whole story and I drew the wrong conclusion. You see, none of these statements they made about Jesus are untrue. They're all true. And they're not derogatory. Except for the one word that they implied. Just. He is all of those things, but is he just those things? And what he is doing should force them to rethink what they knew. Is that all he was? Can you believe it? He was with us this whole time and we didn't see it. Some of them should have said, oh, wait a minute. Do you realize what that means? We could, we could put a sign at the entrance of our town. City of the champion. And we'd never have to take it down. We'd never have to change the slogan. 
home of the war hero of the universe, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. But they can't go there. Why? Well, probably partially because they're afraid of the disturbance that will cause with Rome. Partially because they'd heard of people with a Messiah complex before and the trouble they caused. All true. But that doesn't mean the real doesn't exist. Just look what he's done. None of the fakes have done any of this stuff. In the end, though, it's we can't explain what he's doing, and so we're going to ignore what he's doing. Really? But they could explain it. Maybe, just maybe, the kingdom of God is near. And so we read, they took offense at him. And how does Jesus respond? Well, number one, once again, he says the same thing. He was there the last time. We've been here before, you guys. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, in his own house. What have you been doing in this synagogue since the last time I was here? Is what's behind Jesus' statement. Have you not studied your scriptures, asking yourselves whether you might be falling into the same trap your ancestors fell into with the messengers that you believe God sent them? Oh, no, no, we are way smarter than our ancestors. We've heard that, haven't we? Just as significant as how Jesus doesn't respond, well, how he can't respond. Verse 5, he was not able to do a miracle there except to lay hands on a few sick people and heal them, and he was amazed because of their unfaith, their lack of trust. And at least in the account of Jesus' life as Mark records it, this is the last time that Jesus gets invited to a synagogue. This is not just about coming home to Nazareth. This is about coming home and into that place that every week the scriptures that had been pointing to him were read and being told there's no place for him. What happened when Jesus comes home? Oh, they didn't get angry and throw him out like last time. It's a little more sophisticated than that and perhaps even worse than that. They simply ignored him. They simply found a way to rationalize away what his presence required of them. Or as John puts it in the introduction to his gospel, he came to those who were his own and his own did not receive him. Which should make us perk up a bit, right? His own. His own. Oh my goodness. Who is it that today claims to be his own? Most of us would claim that, wouldn't we? We should want us to at least explore the second and third questions. What is it that really happened there? And number two, how might what happened when Jesus came home be happening right now 
when Jesus is trying to make my heart his home? So let's deal with those questions really briefly. Number one, what really happened? What really happened when Jesus came home? There's a key word in this story that opens up the answer to this question. Underneath all of their questions, above all of the specific things they grabbed onto as reasons or as excuses, can you see the word? Let me give you a hint. It's in verse 3. Mark records what happened, how they reasoned, and then he interprets what happened as a result of their thinking when he says, and so they took offense at him. That's what most of our translations read, and it's, it's an accurate translation. But let me add a little color to what it's saying. By showing you a, a, a transliteration of that word, taking the Greek letters and putting them into England, English, it's the word, they were scandalized by him. The word from which we get scandal. But, but the most common uses of that word, and it's qu- used quite often in the New Testament, is to be trapped. To trip or trap or trip. To trip over and stumble over him. That's what happened. Jesus had asked them to consider whether they really wanted to be treating him like their ancestors to treated the prophets. They knew what happened to the people who treated the prophets that way. God allowed them to be exiled. But in using this word stumble, trip, Mark takes it one step deeper into interpreting for them what happened by bringing up an image from the prophet Isaiah. Through Isaiah the prophet, and, and the, that was read in that synagogue, it's the same image Peter raises in his first letter, Paul raises in the book of Romans chapter 9. Through the Isaiah the prophet, God had promised them he would bring them a leader who would bring them healing and victory and restoration, and he called this leader a rock. That would be a secure foundation on which to build, but at the same time, a rock that would cause many to trip and fall. And how does Jesus end his great Sermon on the Mount? It's a picture, a word picture. You're either building on that rock or you're building on something that's going to come crashing down. Jesus came and most people tripped over him. Jesus came to his own and most of them stumbled and fell over him. The point Mark, and then Paul, and Peter, and Isaiah are all making that is exposed in this incident is that every single one of us has a tripping point. We all do. A point where it's easy to stumble over Jesus and stop building on Jesus. Which should make us want to just look inside for a few minutes and explore the question, what's my tripping point? What's your tripping point? How might what happened when Jesus came home be happening right now as Jesus is trying to make my heart his home? What is that tripping point? Well, to put it in terms of our overall title for the the book, is that for each of us there is a point at which more Jesus starts to seem like too much Jesus, right? That's the point where we're in danger of tripping.
number of our leadership staff were at, a, were at a conference in Vancouver last month. One of the men that was introduced on the stage was the newly appointed global mission leader of the organization that hosted and organized this conference. It was a man who was helping assess and discern how to take Jesus into some of the hot spots, the most dangerous areas of the world. I went up to him after the session to talk to him personally. As I approached him, it took about three seconds, and his eyes got big, and they filled with tears, and he threw his arms around me, and he said, Mel, I have so much wanted to have a conversation with you. And then he said, do you remember when we first met? I did. Although, as he told the story, I remembered it slightly different than he did. He gave me no time to tell him my version. He was quicker on the draw with his story than I was with mine. Can you believe that? I'd I'd become the pastor of his home church when he was about 20 years old. I'd been there for a while, but he'd never been home because he was in the middle of of university years, and he was playing university basketball and traveling all, all over the world in summertime playing basketball for Canada. Or not basketball, volleyball. Sorry, not the real game. The, the, the Volleyball. Um, anyway, uh, he was also at a point of struggling and tripping over Jesus. He was on his way down. And here's how he put it. He says, I came home that summer... And I was really struggling with my faith. I listened to you for two Sundays and I said to myself, here's a guy who I think gets it. I need to ask him every question I have. And so, here's what he says. I called you up and I said, I've got to spend some time with you. And you said, I don't have time. I'm a young father and I'm very busy at the church. I don't think I said that. My hunch is that his mother had told him that because she was always trying to protect me. Anyway, he went on. I said to you, you must have to do some driving around, some errands. Just let me come with you and we can talk while you're driving. I thought that had been my idea, but whatever. I do remember spending almost two whole mornings with him. Driving and sitting for long talks in McDonald's. And then he said, those two talks I had with you that summer changed the course of my life. I remember him wrestling with two things. Number one, is Jesus who he really claimed to be? And number two, if he is, and I really made him everything in my life, wouldn't I just have to quit school right now and give up everything, all my athletic pursuits, all my career ambitions, everything, and go somewhere? And I I don't remember everything I said, but I remember affirming for him that, yes, Jesus is everything. I also remember affirming him that even in his wrestling, he was miles ahead of many people who called themselves by Jesus' name. I remember pointing him to the man in Mark chapter 5. He wanted to abandon everything and go with Jesus. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, you go home. Live your life and tell people around you what Jesus has done for you and what he means to you. And and I, I strongly encouraged him to finish his school, go on with his career, allowing God to use him where he was until he knew, until he knew exactly that God wanted to use him differently. He graduated from university, entered the corporate world, had plenty of opportunity to climb the ladder, and he took some of those opportunities, but not all of them, because he wanted to make Jesus and his family and the ministry at his church the, two, the three biggest priorities. And now he took an earlier retirement because he knew the opportunity that God was giving him.
where he could make the more Jesus factor known around the world. But what has haunted me about his story over the years as I've thought about it is something that he still doesn't know. That summer, I also had a conversation with one of his mother's closest friends. We were talking about the young adults from the church and what they were doing. I didn't know many of them because they'd left the city and left town. And as I brought up this young man's name, said I'd met him and talked with him, she laughed and she shook her head and she says, oh, he's just going a little overboard with the Jesus thing. I didn't know what to say. She was a leader in the church. I knew more than she did about his wrestling. And I knew more than she did about his direction. And I wished that most of the young adults in our church, or that all of them, would go the same way. The question is, can more Jesus really become too much Jesus? Oh, it's true that we can sometimes come across too strongly in forcing Jesus on others, and it's, it's important to wrestle with whether we're actually living it out fully where we are with all of our heart and soul and mind. But if we're beginning to think in any way that more Jesus is becoming too much Jesus, we are in danger of stumbling over Jesus. Do you know what your tripping point is? Let's just... Just consider a couple of questions. Let's start with the core question. The main barrier that Jesus made the barrier was his authority. His authority. His absolute authority. And how did we put it several months ago? (laughs) Authority only matters when we disagree. Hmm. So as I read God's word, where might I be trying to make God's word adapt to me? Well, that doesn't apply in my situation. Well, it's different today rather than making myself adapt to God's word. The last question I have to ask whenever I read God's word is, how does this word require me to adapt to it? Is there a perspective I need to adopt? Is there a directive I need to live out? When's the last time you can point to adapting yourself to God's word rather than try to adapt God's word to you? That's your tripping point. Number two, is there a place where I'm allowing an excuse to validate my stumbling rather than confessing and correcting my stumbling? That's what we do, right? Just like these people, they... they, They looked at one side, and they made an excuse. Well, you know, that's just not me. I need to be true to myself. Really? How about being true to who Jesus is trying to create and transform you to be? I struggle with authority. Hmm. Do I hear a confession there? Or do I hear an excuse? Can I give you a challenge? Would you give permission to someone? Someone who's an all-Jesus kind of person, someone who is willing to tell the truth to you, will you give permission to them to ask you whenever, whenever you're talking, whether it sounds like you're using an excuse to validate not going more Jesus rather than to confess and change your behavior or your thinking? Everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did was to demonstrate one thing. He is the king we need. 
And what our excuses reveal and what we stumble over is that the king we want is not always the king we need. Number three, what are my fears exposing? We won't uh, talk about that. Just to say that Jesus didn't come to make my little kingdom work. He came I don't even have that completed there. He came to invite me into a much bigger kingdom. He did. Quite often, what happens is in our fears, we're trying to get Jesus to make our little kingdom work. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm inviting you into a much bigger kingdom. Will you trust me into that? Number four, where is it that I'm feeling disappointed by Jesus? Several years ago, an article appeared in Christianity Today with the title, Jesus Disappoints Everyone. It was a sort of a creative exposition around John the Baptist's experience. One of the statements in there, failed expectations lie at the heart of every disappointment. There are some ways in which Jesus has not met our expectations. And some of those disappointments are times when Jesus allows us to suffer. Some of you are aware that three weeks ago, a dear colleague of ours for many years died in Dallas, Texas. And we had worked together for about 10 years uh, over two different periods of time. And and we remained very close friends as a couple with Steve and Sally. And he died after seven years of suffering with the effects of a brain tumor. And uh, it was suffering for himself and, and equally so for his wife who had to care for him as he was deteriorating, as well as maintain a full-time job and make some very, very difficult decisions along the way, financially and other things. On top of that, there were, there, there were other major, major struggles that were piled onto them. Each, each of them in their own would have been overwhelming. As we were talking with her last week when, when we were there, we asked her, how, how could you do it? And she gave us her formula She said, I had to believe that if God was allowing this to happen to me, he wanted it to develop something in me for his glory. And every single day, every single new bad experience, I said to God, she said, sometimes I lay on the floor and said it. I said, Lord, bring it on. I believe that you allow, what what you allow is what I need in some way for my good. I want all of you for all of me, good or bad. I don't want to miss out on any of your blessing. Amazing woman. The question that we have to ask is, what is the point that I am in danger of fearing that more Jesus is going to be too much Jesus? The irony is that it was actually the rejection of his own that paved the way for Jesus to deliver on the cross for us to come home and allow my heart to be his home. Next week, we're going to explore the one big more Jesus step that will keep us from stumbling over Jesus. But for today, let's just wrap it up by by listening one more time in Jesus' invitation to us from heaven through a vision he gave to John, still waiting to come home. 
regardless of how we have stumbled, regardless of how we are on the verge of stumbling, as we listen to this again, would you ask yourself, in what way is Jesus inviting me to allow him to come home? Look, I'm standing right now at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come into his home and make it my home with him. We'll share a meal together as friends. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge before you that we are in more danger of tripping over Jesus than we want to admit or sometimes even recognize. We have become so good at excusing our stumbles, at masking and denying and pretending we don't stumble, at blaming others for our stumbles. We do everything but become before you in humility, in abandonment, in trust. Lord, thank you that our stumbling did not keep you from following through all the way to provide for us a way to come home, to allow you to make our home your home. Lord, help us to release ourselves today fully into the arms of Jesus and allow you to embrace us fully. We lift up today for your care, Joel Augustine. I pray today that you will bring him healing and most of all, an awareness of your life-giving presence. We pray for Aaron and Tessa Richard as they adapt to their new home. May, may they do so with the confidence that you are using them to invite people to come home to you. And Lord, as we uh, think of our ministry here, we thank you for our freedom sessions. And as it's wrapping up, we pray that, that you will help each of these graduates to continue on the journey of not stumbling over Jesus, but stumbling forward into Jesus. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and for all eternity. And in the name of Jesus, all of God's people said, Amen.